let's start with the chant Om Bhadram Karne Bhe Shrinuyama Deva Bhadram Pashe Maksha Bhirya Jatra Sthirai Rangai Stushtvagam Sastanubhihi Vyashema Devahitai Yadayuhu Swastina Indro Vridhashravaha Swastina Pusha Vishwavedaha Swastina Starksho Arishtanemihi Swastino Brihaspatir Dadhatu Om Shanti 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 So we were studying the uh, Mandukya Karika. Uh, we have just completed the second chapter. So today I wanted to give you a, a sort of a review of the second chapter to see where we are now. The Mandukya Upanishad itself was the, um, the focus of the first chapter. You know the four chapters of the Mandukya Karika, the text itself, the text itself is built around the Mandukya Upanishad uh, and Gaurapada wrote verses on the Mandukya Upanishad which are called Mandukya Karika and these verses are organized in four chapters. Chapter 1 is called Agama Prakarana, the chapter dealing with the uh, Upanishad itself, the original text. So chapter 1 is built around the Upanishad. Upanishad is embedded in the, in the first chapter. The second chapter is called Vaitathya Prakarana, the chapter dealing with falsity. Not that the chapter is false, but it deals with the falsity of the universe, the, that the universe is an appearance, it is not true in itself. So, um, and then, so the aim in chapter uh, 2 is to demonstrate with the help of reason and experience that this uh, universe is not as we see it to be. Vaitatya, literally, it's an interesting word. Instead of saying falsity straight out, the Sanskrit word for falsity is mithyatva. Vaitatya, the Sanskrit word, if you literally translate it, it means not as such, not the way you see it, the way you think it to be, not that way, not that the universe is not quite that way. Then the third chapter is called Advaita Prakaranam, the chapter on non-duality. The uh, Upanishad claims that the ultimate reality is a non-dual reality, that there is only one reality without a second. Can we prove that with the help of logic, with reasoning? That is the focus of the third chapter. And the fourth chapter is a bit of a miscellany. It is called Alata Shanti Prakarana, the chapter um, with literally it's a very poetic title the the quenching of the firebrand alata shanti prakarana there's a reason for that name we'll come see it when we come to it but it has a miscellany of subjects inside in that chapter so the second chapter which we have just completed is called vaitathya prakarana the chapter on the falsity of the universe see the two central ideas of um, advaita vedanta that there is only one non-dual truth, Brahman. And the second idea is the world is an appearance of that. It's not a reality in itself. Brahma Satyam Jagat Mithya. Brahman alone is real. The world is an appearance. And what are we? 
We are that Brahman, that ultimate reality. So these, these two ideas you find in the um, Upanishad itself. If you remember when we studied the Upanishad, the seventh mantra of the Upanishad was the most powerful uh, mantra which dealt with the nature of Turiya, um, the, the fourth. We remember the basic premise of the Upanishad itself that if you analyze yourself, you will know the truth. Because according to Vedanta, the self itself is the ultimate reality. So if you analyze the, the self, yourself, you will understand the truth of this universe. So how do you analyze the self? The method, the peculiar method of this Upanishad is, we remember the analysis of the three states, waking, dreaming, deep sleep. So these three, the Upanishad said that the self has four aspects. Three are waking, dreaming, deep sleep. These are the ones which we know. Our entire life, our self is the waker the, and the waker's world, the dreamer and the dreamer's world and the deep sleeper and the, the, the blankness or darkness of deep sleep. This is what we experience ourselves as. This is our life. And the Upanishad claims these three are appearances of a fourth. These three, waking, dreaming and deep sleep, these three are actually names and forms playing on a reality underneath, the fourth. Literally the word Turiya means the fourth. Turiya Chaturtha, fourth. So waking we know, understand what is meant and what is the waking self we know. The dreaming we understand and we know what, what the dream, dreamer is like. And uh, the deep sleeper we know, we understand it. But what is this Turiya? What is this ultimate reality about ourselves the Upanishad talks about? That, that was the subject of the seventh mantra of the Upanishad. We studied it. In the seventh mantra two words came up. One is Prapanchopashamam. You remember Prapanchopashamam Shivam Advaitam. Prapanchopashamam. Prapanchopashama, the word itself is very poetic. It means the cessation of the universe, the silence of the universe, the seizing of the universe. In our, in more general Advaitic terms, the falsity of the universe, that the universe in itself is not real. That, that word. And another word is Advaitam, non-dual. The next two, the, these two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, are actually entirely based on these two words. Chapter 2 is an explanation of that word Prapanchopashama. Where is that word? Seventh mantra of the Upanishad, which we studied in the first chapter. From that uh, word has come this second chapter, entire second chapter, is an attempt to demonstrate what is meant by the cessation of the universe or the the uh, the falsity of the universe, um, the non-real nature of the universe. Demonstrate it how? On the basis of reasoning and experience. Upanishad said it. Upanishad is scripture. Scripture said it. Fine. But can we logically understand it? It's an incredible claim that this universe which we are experiencing is not a real. Then what is it? So that is the claim. So can we experience it with reason? That is the, uh, that's the project in the second chapter. So how did he, uh, did he proceed in the second chapter? The second chapter is entirely the composition of Gaudapada. The first chapter is not entirely the composition of Gaudapada. The first chapter co contains the Upanishad. 
which is much older than Gaurapada. And Gaurapada's commentaries on the Upanishad. But the second chapter consisting of 38 verses, 39 verses, how many? 38 verses is entirely the, the composition of Gaurapada. So how does Gaurapada go about demonstrating the falsity of the, of the universe? See, the two are two sides of a coin. The non-duality of Brahman, Turiya and the falsity of the universe are two sides of the same coin. This multiple, pluralistic, dualistic universe, if this is an appearance, that it is at least an appearance, nobody can deny. Who can deny? We are experiencing it. Advaita never denies what is experienced. So we are experiencing it as a plural universe. Who can deny this? This is obvious. We are experiencing it. But the claim is, though you are experiencing it, it's not as you think it to be. It's not a reality in itself. There is an underlying reality. So to prove that, the falsity has first to be proved. A rope is mistaken by some as a snake. Those who don't know the rope in darkness, they think as a snake. Another person sees it as a garland discarded from a temple. Another person sees it as a crack on the ground caused by an earthquake or whatever. Now, to demonstrate that there is only one, that there is only a rope, to demonstrate that, that rope, the rope is the only truth, you have to demonstrate that these three are false. That there is no snake. It looks like a snake, but it's not really a snake. It looks like a garland, but it's not really a garland. It looks like a crack on the earth, but it's not really a crack on the earth. These three, when they are shown to be false, automatically, the obverse side of this is, the rope will be so, shown to be the only reality. Only reality, another word is non-dual. There is no second. Why no, no second? Because it seems to be that there are three. Um, there is a snake, there is a, some say it's a garland, some say it's a crack on the ground. If those three are denied, they, they are underlying one and non-dual reality, the rope will be revealed. Another way, way of, uh, as we go on, along, we'll see, I'll give you more examples. So what did Gaurapada do in this chapter to demonstrate the falsity of the universe? Big project to wipe out the universe. <laughs> so what does he do? Uh, he uses one striking example, the example of our dreams. He uses it to great effect. That's very important to understand that for the rest of the chapter. So he first of all starts off in, in verses 1, 2 and 3. He makes sure that we are on the same page regarding dreams. Regarding dreams means he's not interested in what you are dreaming about. That your therapist might be interested. But Gaurapada is not interested in what you are dreaming about. He is interested in showing that whatever you are dreaming about, the objects of the dream are not real. We might say that, why waste time on that? We know that dreams are not real. We don't take dreams seriously. We say it's only a dream. The very phrase, it's only a dream. Oh, I dreamt it. Oh, it was a nightmare, a dream. Not real in itself. So we understand the falsity of the dream. But Gaurapada wants to make sure that we understand it thoroughly. Otherwise, later on, there might be confusion. So 
he says dreams are false when you have an experience and a dream and then you wake up and then you say what do you say oh it was a dream it wasn't real it was a dream just a dream you say why would you say that Gaudapada says let's analyze it we say it straight away but why would you what what philosophical reason what reason can you assign for the dream why is it false why would you think it's it's false you have a question you hold the question until we um, cover uh, each uh, each section of the chapter so why would would the dreams be false now remember i'm going to go fast because we are we've done all this so just quickly recap in the first three verses gaudapada gives a couple of reasons to consider to say that the dreams are to demonstrate that dreams are not real in themselves dreams are not real again remember he is not denying that you experience dreams obviously you can't deny that all of us we dream but what he is what he is saying is that the, the objects seen in the dream are not real the events which happened in the dream did not really happen the people you met in the dream you did not really meet them so um what is the what are the reasons he gives two reasons he says uchita desha kala abhava that means lack of um, lack of consistency in time and space lack of consistency in time and space what does that mean it means you dream very vividly that you had taken a trip to mumbai maybe and uh, then suddenly you wake up and here you are in your apartment in manhattan now is it that you actually went to mumbai last night and you came back and now you're you're lying in your bed not possible not possible within uh, a span of 3 uh, or 4 or 5 hours not possible you couldn't have gone there sufficient space is not uh, time is not there M sometimes many years seem to pass many things happen in a dream which might have taken many years and when you wake up you see the whole thing was dreamt in the span of a not only one night sleep they say that within one night we actually have many many dreams each lasting a few minutes so clearly they couldn't have occurred we imagined it or we dreamt it because time is not consistent another reason is space is not consistent you dreamt that or i dreamt i was walking in central park and a lake and the city skyline and people all those things i saw and i woke up in my room and i realized i saw it i saw it only in my mind it was all there here only that's because i'm in my i'm in my bedroom clearly there is not space enough here no matter how empty my head might be not enough space for central park and the the manhattan skyline it's not there so lack of space lack of or, or inconsistency in time and space demonstrates that it couldn't really have happened we never we you have a question yes i have an issue with that I yes have a with that. yes what about that our souls travel at night and if you are out of body which is like it's not a dream state but you can go anywhere at the mere thought of it hmm. if i think of mumbai i will be in mumbai and if i think i'm going to be back in my bedroom i'm back in my bedroom hmm. so that is a little bit what i'm struggling with right so did that really happen you are saying that why couldn't it happen our souls travel at at night even if our souls whatever it is souls travel at night isn't it all imagined in the mind when you are sleeping when body is um, shut down for sleep 
and the uh, mind is churning away in itself, internally you are imagining it. Um, isn't it the counterpart of imagining right now that I go to Mumbai and come back? I really did not go. I'm sitting here in the class just now. No, I didn't go. I, was, I just imagined it. Isn't it that's what happening in a more vivid form in your dream? And suppose, let me give you, if, let me give you what the, the reason Gaurapada is, is, is saying that. He's saying, why can't it happen? In an instant, I can go to Mumbai and come back. So why isn't there time for going to Mumbai? In an instant, you can think of Mumbai and going there and coming back. In a, but in an instant, can you actually go to Mumbai and come back? You say, no, why not? The soul can go. Okay, let me give you this test case. You went to Mumbai and you met your friend whom you haven't met for 25 years and you had a nice cup of tea, chai in Mumbai and then you're back here in Manhattan. So, I said, why not? He said, call your friend. We, sh we, sh we shared a cup of tea last night. Said, no, you didn't. We haven't met for 25 years. <laughs> yes. If two people agree in an out-of-body experience, they will meet in Mumbai or whatever street yeah, but all of those things, why is it relevant here? Yeah, and just, I had a little bit of a struggle because Gadapada just like says nothing is real because it cannot happen, but I have experienced it, so I know it can happen. It might happen coincidentally, but see, even if that happened, but uh, you, you, are, you had a kind of experience which matched with somebody else, but does it normally happen in our dreams? Does it normally happen? Does it always happen in your dreams that whatever you dreamt of is matched by what happened in the waking world? Every place you visit in the dream, you actually have the tickets for that when you wake up on your table. Um, every person you met confirms it. Yes, we met in our subtle bodies. All right. But your normal dreams, are they like that? Are they all, uh, they could turn out to be real? Of course not. Which means it's quite possible to dream something and not have it happen in the external world. Yes. Is it possible or not? Right. But even if that does happen, you see, uh, what would happen is you had an experience and you say it matches with somebody else's experience. Somebody else said that it happened. Yeah. It, it does. So, would there be three or other four persons who saw, yes, we saw you in the restaurant together, in your slightly ghostly bodies? <laughs> no! <laughs> Notice one thing. Even if another person replicates your, your experience, what you are saying, I, I believe you entirely. But those, both of your experiences still would not be corroborated by the public. Would the, um, you, you went and had a chai with somebody in a restaurant. Would the cameras in the restaurant have recorded your presence? No. So it did not happen in this waking world. This world we are inhabiting, it's not an event in this waking world. Clearly. This is, this is see, that's why Gaurapada is it's important to, to make it clear. Otherwise, you'll have objections like this coming up halfway into the chapter. Then it'll be a disaster afterwards. <laughs> so, clearly, we can have multiple experiences in our dream worlds which are completely falsified when we wake up. It did not happen. We put it, we categorize it as a dream experience. It seems absolutely common sense, but still, Gaudapada wants to make it um, clear that there is an inconsistency between our dream experiences and our waking experiences. Hence, they are not part of the same world. Clearly not.
Um, all right. Now, after having established this, established what? The falsity of the dream. Not only that, even people who claim that the dream experiences are somehow real, you may claim that, you may say it, you don't behave like that in the world here. You actually don't. If your friend gave you $100,000 in your dream, and uh, he corroborates, yes, in your dream I put $100,000 in your account, do you immediately go out when you wake up and buy a fancy car? No, you don't. Even you are smiling, you don't. Why wouldn't you? If you suddenly got a windfall of $100,000 in the waking state, you would. You would go out and spend it. But in the, you got it in the dream, why don't you go out and spend it in the waking state? If it is real, if it if it's really did happen in this um, uh, waking experience, of course you don't. Even if you claim that, even if you argue for that, you don't behave like that. Okay. Now, now the next, having established the falsity of the dream objects events not denying that you saw the dream not denying that things happened in the dream but denying that they actually are real uh, in comparison to your waking denying that now Gaurapada says let's consider the waking the second part of this um, uh, the second point he wants to make in this chapter is just like the dream is false in comparison to the waking Similarly, this waking world is also false. Here is the main point of the chapter. The falsity of the world, what we consider to be the real world, this world. We normally don't consider the dream world to be real. We consider this world to be real. And Gaurapada wants to say, just as you consider the dream world to be false, this world is also false. But, but here's the important rider. With regard to what? The waking world is false. A dream world is false with regard to the waking not in the dream perspective, but in the waking perspective. And the waking world is false from the perspective of Turiya, the consciousness, back, the background consciousness, the self. One consciousness in which appears the waker in the waker's world, the dreamer in the dreamer's world, and the deep sleep, deep sleeper in the deep sleep uh, experience of darkness. Now, why? What reason? Just as you gave reasons for the dream world being false, the waking world does not seem to be false. So what are the reasons? This is the core of the chapter, let us say, the core arguments. Basically two reasons. Gaurapada gives two reasons. First he says, because of the well-known reason. What was the well-known reason? Uh, Shankaracharya explains, drashta and drishya. Very interesting reason. Normally we consider anything to be true because we experienced it. It's here that we experience it. Therefore, it's real. Follow this reasoning. According to Advaita, according to the reason given here, it is false because you experience it. Why? Whatever is an object to consciousness is in some sense dependent on consciousness. Whatever is an object. See, in dreams, you saw all of that. But it, it all manifested because you are seeing it. All the people and the events, if you had not seen the dream, they wouldn't have been there. The moment you stop seeing it, they are not there anymore. It's gone. Similarly, in the waking universe, again, whatever we experience, we experience in consciousness. Whether you believe in God or not, 
atheist, theist, in consciousness, whether you're doing science or religion or art or politics or just watching TV, it's in consciousness. Everything is experienced in consciousness, is presented to consciousness. Gaurapada makes a big deal out of that. Whatever you see, the object of seeing, object of hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, whatever you do, all of that, without consciousness, it makes, it, it, there is no proof of its existence. So, if it is it dependent on consciousness, it has no independent existence apart from consciousness. This not having an independent existence is what is called falsity by Gaurapada. No intrinsic existence. It says no independent existence uh, apart from consciousness. Therefore, it is not real. Not real in the sense, not that it is not experienced. Just like dream objects are experienced, the waking world is obviously experienced. Not that it is. Uh, it has no use. Of course, you feel thirsty, drink a glass of water, it will work. Just as it will work in the dream, it will work here. Not that... Um, you can't do things there. You can drive a car in your dreams, you can drive a car in, in, in waking also. So, all kinds of dealings are possible. Use, utility is possible. Um, um, what else? Transactions are, are, are possible. And of course, experience is possible. You can see all of that. And yet, it does not have to have this intrinsic existence, which it seems to have in dreams when you wake up. Not there. Similarly, it seems to have an intrinsic existence of its own. But when you think about it, here you, waking up means not that you wake up into another state. Remember, Turiya is not a different state. From dreams, you have fallen asleep. That's why you are dreaming. The waker falls asleep. Therefore, the waker, uh, the waker is subject to dreams in the dream state. You wake up from sleep. That is waking up from dream into waking. But waking up from waking state into Turiya is not a kind of psychological thing which happens uh, when you suddenly wake up into another kind of state. Rather, it is why is the waker subject to this uh, idea this is a real world? Because of ignorance. Dream was a product of sleep. This reality of the waking world is a product of ignorance. Ignorance of what? Ignorance of our real nature as Turiya. By this analysis, by the what is called Vedanta Vichara, Vedantic inquiry, the truth about ourselves is revealed. That is waking up. It happens here in the waking state itself. In fact, the only state in which it can happen is waking. And maybe very arguably in a dream, maybe some people can uh, get come into the intuition. But generally it does happen in the waking because it's a waking only that we have uh, classes. <laughs> and the Vedanta Society, <laughs> you can come here. But uh, so now in the, this state itself, through a, this philosophical inquiry, you awaken to the real nature about yourself. So one reason is because it is experienced, it dis, it's dependent on the experiencing consciousness. Consciousness is the experiencer. Think about it this way. On what does uh, Vedanta is, is, uh, becomes easy if you connect it directly to your life right now. Not to your preconceptions or prejudices. Connect it to your life right now. What you are experiencing. Not what you might have read. Not what you might believe. What you are literally experiencing at this moment. How? Let me ask you. 
if um, say a certain uh, certain people outside in the in the on the street if they didn't exist at all would you still be here yeah if the, i don't know what you're talking about somebody may or may not be there i'm still here all right um, if in this room itself other people were to disappear would i still be here yeah i guess so i'd be alone but i'm still here if i close my eyes I can't see anything. This empty room also I cannot see. But am I still here and look? Yeah, I'm here. I can't see, but I'm here. If I close all my sense organs, if it's possible, and they have, they have sensory deprivation tanks. So would I still be there? Yeah, I'm still there. I can't sense anything. It would be a strange experience, but I'm still there. I am experiencing strange experience. But there must be an experience for even a strange experience. Body, if it's not there, am I still there? You say, how would I know that? You know that. Your very dream shows it. In your dream, you don't experience a body. This body. Because this body is sleeping uh, on the bed. You have a dream, a body in a dream. Clearly, the, waking, the body which you use you know, in your waking state is sleeping on, on, the, on the couch or on the bed. And you don't experience it. And yet, you have a vivid conscious experience of dreaming and doing things. So, arguably... You could exist as a conscious being without this particular body. It can continue. So there are thought experiments. Suppose a person is uploaded into a computer and did not, does not know. There's, there's thought experiments now. Uh, or they, they call it a BIV. Those philosophy students know about it. Brain in a vat. Brain in a vat uh, thought experiment is, suppose your brain is the source of your consciousness. So if the brain is taken out and put and connected into all sorts of um, sensory devices, and inputs are given to it, the brain would still think that I'm in a body. Because, after all, the, according to modern neuroscience, everything that you are experiencing right now, you are not directly experiencing anything. Everything is supplied to your senses. The senses gather all the information and through the nerves and all, it is taken to the brain, to the various centers in the brain, the, the neurons there. And there at that level, there is no, there are no people, chairs, light, sound, nothing is there in the brain except minute electrical um, activity of the neurons. Is it true or not? Yes. Yeah. Can anybody doubt it? No, nobody can doubt that. That's the literal physicalist interpretation of what's happening. Therefore, something happens in the brain when those minute electrical uh, interactions between neurons are suddenly reconstituted into this glorious multicolor multimedia experience we are having now. Which means in principle, if the brain were somehow put in a kind of biochemical vat, we kept alive and given all the right stimuli, it would still think I'm alive and I'm, I'm in a body and I'm doing all this. Now why did I say that? Even without a physical body, it's possible that you're, you as a conscious being, you can continue. That's all I want to say. And science fiction says if you're uploaded into a computer, all the data of your brain, you would still think that I'm a body and walking around and having an experience. All that will be in a virtuality. Even that experience would have to depend on consciousness. All of these experiences have to depend on consciousness. You still continue as long as consciousness continues. Where am I going with this? Here. Here is the point. I am dismissing one by one everything. And you say, no, I still exist. In a strange way maybe, but I still continue. I feel my own existence. 
even without the world, even without people, even without senses, even without body, even if you consider the dream of deep sleep experience with the mind also shuts down, in some sense I ex exist because I come back again. So I was not wiped out. So all these things, experiences come back. Now, in contrast to this, here is the point. In contrast to this, think, if that awareness, that consciousness of you your, as yourself, that conscious, everything is here now, that consciousness is switched off, then, then what happens to your life, your experience of the universe? Nothing. Nothing. Lights off, exactly. Lights off. I'm telling you, what, I, what, what did I just say? Keep the consciousness as it is. Slowly, one by one, take away everything. People of the world, the cities outside, this, people in this room. Take away your senses, eyes, ears. Shut down all of them one by one. As long as the mind is functioning, you can have a dream existence. Shut down the mind also. In some sense, you continue as a witness of the blankness. But keep everything, this entire universe, just take away that, that uh, awareness, switch it off inside. In some sense, just imagine what would happen. Even to imagine that you need consciousness. You just, everything disappears. In Sanskrit they call it Jagat Andhya Prasanga. The blindness of the universe would result. Without consciousness is fundamental. Without consciousness there is no proof of anything else. With consciousness... All other things can appear and go. So the proof of an of external world is the consciousness we have in the waking state. Proof of the dream world is the consciousness we have in the dream state. The same consciousness uh, illumines the absences of things in the deep sleep, what we call deep sleep. And if there are other states, suppose there are. Gaudapada just takes the common waking, dreaming, deep sleep. Suppose you have mystic experiences, and you said out-of-body experiences astral travel, mystic experiences, chakras, kundalini awakening, whatever you can say, weed, marijuana, and, uh, and we, we have a, um, a doctor here who, whose job is to daily treat people who have ingested all sorts of substances. So they have all ranges of experiences, starting from drug-induced experiences to the highest spiritual mystic experiences, including Sri Ramakrishna seeing Mother Kali. All of that depends on what? Consciousness. Can you think of the, any kind of spiritual experience which does not depend on consciousness? It does depend on consciousness. You have a question? Wait, wait. What, I, what, what am I trying to show? I'm trying to show the primacy of consciousness. So have you noted? Everything, whatever is possible to experience in this universe, in your life, it depends on your consciousness. And everything may be there, but without consciousness it's just blank. Nothing. Less than nothing. Deep sleep is a kind of nothing. And without consciousness, less than nothing. Not even, it's inconceivable actually. Because the externality of the world and external separate existence is inconceivable, without some kind of consciousness to conceive of it, we say that the universe now is this point. The universe has no real existence apart from consciousness. That's the point. Without, because it depends on your consciousness. I understand that. Yes. But according to Gaudapada, he would tell Sri Ramakrishna that his experience of seeing Kali, the, the, the mother, is, was not real. 
Yeah, you understand that, right? What did you say? I understand that. I understand that the experience of everything is dependent on consciousness. Right. right. Gaudapada would tell Sri Ramakrishna, your experience of the Divine Mother is dependent on your consciousness. Okay. Correct. And Gaudapada would go on to say, your experience of God, here is the question, then the experience of God is real or false? Experience in itself is experience. What Gaudapada is saying, the objects of experience are appearances. Now, your question would be, clearly for Sri Ramakrishna, when he experienced Kali as the Divine Mother, it was an object, mystical object, but he experienced Kali as an object. That objective aspect of Kali is obviously false. It has to be false. But would Sri Ramakrishna agree with that if he could appear here now? No. Uh, no. Yes, uh, the, the, we, we will, but I, I will just make one comment, it's a very deep question. I'll say make one comment there and go ahead. One is that notice Sri Ramakrishna in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, when he attained Nirvikalpa Samadhi, he was unable to go, if you know the story of Nirvikalpa Samadhi of Sri Ramakrishna, he was unable to go into Nirvikalpa Samadhi because every time he tried, the blissful form of the Divine Mother would come. That's the last thing he could experience. Everything disappeared but Kali is there. Then Todapuri says, take the sword of knowledge and cut Kali into when she appears before you. And that's what he did. And then the whole structure of experience, subject and object, disappeared into oneness. Yeah. So there was no more form to be seen. That's also an experience. According to Gaudapada, Nirvikalpa Samadhi is also an experience. But it's no object at all. Yeah. It reveals the reality of consciousness in itself. But it's also an experience. Why it came and went. Okay, my point in narrating this is, remember Sri Ramakrishna also, in his own words, he went to a higher state of spiritual experience where he transcended the name and form, the objective aspect of Kali. God has two aspects, the reality which is your own consciousness, plus a name and form which is imposed. That name and form, Gaudapada says, in the highest analysis from non-dual perspective, that name and form is also false. We accept it. It's, it's a bit shocking, but, uh, um, but it's actually, if you have followed so far, I'm not saying anything very new. No, 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 it's just, I'm still processing. I'm new, so. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, remember, what is, what is false according to Gaudapada? The world. The world. What is the world according to the, in the language of Mandukya? What is the world? Use the language of, of uh, Mandukya. The language of Mandukya is always waking, dreaming, deep sleep. So what is the universe according to Mandukya? It is the external waking universe. The one which is, which is called the gross or physical universe experienced through the senses. It is the subtle universe experienced in the mind in dreams. It is the potential universe, causal universe experienced in deep sleep. All three are false according to Gaudapada. They are all appearances to consciousness, to Turiya. What is God in Gaudapada's dream? We, we discussed all this last time. What is God in, in the Mandukya um, uh, structure? God is Virat, Hiranyagarbha, Ishwara. That consciousness associated with the totality, the causal universe, the subtle universe and the gross universe is called Virat. 
then that, that same consciousness associated with the causal universe and the subtle universe is called Hiranyagarbha. That same consciousness in its causal aspect associated only with the causal uh, universe or which is Maya is called Ishvara. This is the concept of God in, uh, in, in Mandukya. Here, just as the three worlds are false, these three conceptions are also dismissed. But does that mean God is not real? No. What it means is, after all, according to Advaita Vedanta, are you real or not? Yes. yes. What are you? Turiya. If you are real, is God not real? <laughs> yes. The reality of God is Turiya. Reality of God is Turiya. The reality of God is not a name and form called Kali or Vishnu or a formless with quality idea uh, like uh, say Father in Heaven or something like that. None of them are ultimately real because those aspects are also objects of consciousness. But it does not mean God is, God is false. God, the, the core of the idea of God is pure consciousness which you are. That's the meaning of Aham Brahmasmi. That was the Mahavakya of Mandukya Upanishad. I am Brahman. Anyway, back to the first cause which Gaudapada gives. The first reason or Hetu. Why is the world an appearance? Drishyatvat. Because it is an object to consciousness. Whatever is an object to consciousness is dependent on consciousness. You are the reality of which the un your universe is an appearance. This universe is your appearance. You remember the story of the princess of Kashi? I've told you that. This is the first, first reason given for the falsity of the universe. The second reason is, Gaurapada himself gives, Anityatvat. Uh, he says, because it is, it comes and goes. It is subject to appearance and disappearance. He says, what was not there in the beginning, what appears now and what is not there in the end, it does not exist now also. What does not exist earlier and will not exist later on does not exist now also. What is the reasoning behind this? We have gone into it. That if something is subject to appearance and disappearance, birth and death, creation and destruction, then it has borrowed existence. Do you remember the distinction between intrinsic, the story of the, the, the example of the po boiling potato? Uh, the potato is not hot in itself. It has borrowed heat from the boiling water. The boiling water is not hot in itself. It has borrowed heat from the pan. The pan is not hot in itself. It has borrowed heat from the fire. Fire is not hot in itself. It is. Okay. Okay. You have been listening carefully. The fire is hot in itself. It is not borrowed in heat from anything else. Notice then, the heat of the fire does not go away. As long as the fire is there, it will continue to be hot because it has not borrowed fire from anywhere else. Intrinsically, it is hot. But all the others, they gain heat and lose heat because they borrow it from elsewhere. It does not belong to them. Now, this is just an example. What am I trying to show? If existence is gained and lost, then it must be a borrowed existence. What do you mean by gaining and losing ex existence? We don't normally talk that way. The common way of talking about it is birth and death, creation and destruction, appearance and disappearance. So it must have borrowed existence. Now look at the things of the, of the waking world and the dream world. In fact, the entire, all the states, waking, dreaming and deep sleep, all the states, they come and go. They appear and disappear. The universe is created and it is destroyed. So it does not have intrinsic existence. Not having intrinsic existence 
is a sign of falsity. Because it's again dependent. Just as it, earlier we saw it was dependent on consciousness, on chit, therefore false. The universe is dependent on sat, existence, therefore false. It, it borrows existence from what? From the fourth, from you the witness consciousness. It is your existence which is reflected in the universe. Again the dream example is very nice. All the people you meet in the dream, all the places that you visit, all the events that happen in your dream, their existence depends on what? On the dreamer's mind. They have all borrowed existence from the dreamer's mind. As long as the dreamer is dreaming those things, they are there for you to experience. When you stop dreaming, they disappear. They have no independent existence. The pizza that you are eating um, in your dream, time to wake up, the alarm is ringing. I can't, do you rush to put it in your dream fridge so that the next day, no, it will disappear the moment you wake up. Because its existence depends upon you dreaming it. Similarly, the existence of all things here in this universe depends upon the Turiya, in which they are all experienced. This is the uh, second reason. So two reasons are given. This is the core argument, the, let us say, the core algorithm of the entire chapter. Because it is an object of consciousness, one, Drishyatvat. Second, because it is impermanent. Clearly, these two are observed in everything in the universe. Whatever you experience in the universe is impermanent. Whatever you experience in the universe, just because you experience it, must be an object to your consciousness. Therefore, the dramatic conclusion, they all are dependent upon you. The one existence consciousness, the one Turiya, for their so-called existence. The so-called existence, this dependent existence, is called mithya, false. They are false because of that. Can it be argued, I'm just playing the devil's advocate here a little bit, that the physical world, let's say, exists, but it is entirely a manifestation or an aspect of Brahman, and it reverts to Brahman at the end of its life, and objects revert to Brahman. So I'm contrasting that with Gaudapada's thing, which is that it's completely an illusion. Is it completely an illusion, or is it, a physical manifestation which still conforms to non-duality because everything is Brahman. The two, the two are the same. Let me ask you, um, a pot made of clay, what would you say? Is the pot an entirely an illusion or is it a manifestation of clay which has come into being, exists now and one day will become clay again? What, do you, what would you say? The latter. Yes. Would you say the latter? Yes. Gaudapada would say the first one. Gaudapada would say the first one, that it, it's a completely an illusion. Advaita Vedanta, Shankara's Advaita Vedanta will, will see, this is the thing. Our common sense mind tells us that something has happened. A pot has been produced out of clay. We discussed this endlessly. I know he would, but ah. how, would you, how would you decide what it is in the sense that... We have that's discussed it. That's, that's the position of this... Mm. That we, I, we have, um, answers have been given. Well, let me give you the answer again, once again. And again, it will come again in the third chapter. This is the great theory of Ajata, that non-origination of anything. The question is, you look at the language you used, pot and clay. So pot is something that has emanated out of clay, would you say? Has been made out of clay? Has been manifested out of clay? Sure. Now exists in itself? 
and has clay also no doubt but one day we'll go back to clay again right so what Gaudapada would say that truly has anything been produced is there a now a new entity called pot what is this pot apart from clay when you touch the pot you are touching clay when you weigh the pot you are weighing clay I'm ignoring that water has been mixed with it and all of that when uh, you are using the pot you are using clay itself Name and form and use are new. Clearly the name pot was not applied to a lump of clay. It's a name. Clearly the form of the pot was not there in the lump of clay. It's a new form, clearly. The use which you put the pot to, you could not use the lump of clay for that. You can't keep water in a lump of clay. But you can keep water and milk in a pot. So name, form and use are new. So you say, this is what I'm saying. But Gaurapada, remember Advaita is always very strict, very logical, you have to be a little harsh here. We are talking about reality and reality only. What is the reality of this name, form and use? Clay. clay. Without the clay, the name, form and use cannot be used. How do you know? Why, why wouldn't you say that name, form and um, use are something in themselves? They are obviously so important in our practical life. In our practical life, granted. Everything is, um, I mean, we use it and it has tremendous importance. But philosophically speaking, metaphysically speaking, from the point of view of reality, what reality do these name, form and uh, use have? What reality does the pot have apart from the clay? Apart from the clay, it disappears. If you say they are, they are something new which has come, then the question will be, show me the new thing without the clay. Show me the pot without the clay. You cannot. It is the clay alone which is appearing in this form. Of course, very useful. Of course, you can give it new names. Pot, jar, whatever you can call it. It looks different. It's, um, it's used differently. But, and it's named differently. But the reality behind it is still the same and unchanged. And the, the pot in the clay, the, the clay in the pot, the water in the wave, that is the reality. The wave is something, the appearance of the wave, the existence of the wave and the disappearance of the wave, all are from water and in water. I don't, I don't question that, I get that. But, but the, question, the question is why deny the existence of the pot as, as a manifestation of the clay or a manifestation of consciousness? Let's, I, I'm, I have already answered it again, but let me narrow in again. All right, we'll, we'll discuss it. This, this, uh, let's see if we can come to an uh, understanding here. Why deny, you said, why deny the existence of the pot as a manifestation of the clay? Correct. Nobody is denying the existence of a pot as a manifestation of the clay. They are, they are denying the existence of a pot in a, as a thing in itself. So why deny the existence of the universe as a manifestation of, of consciousness? Nobody is denying it. Who denied it? What, what is your meaning of uh, manifestation? What is the difference between manifestation and illusion? Manifestation is, would you call the, call the rainbow an illusion or a manifestation? You know, using the language of modern language, something that can be measured is, is a manifestation. Something can, can be measured. measured. Um, so, can you measure the part I'm going to take the clay away. Can you measure the pot in itself? No, because 
it cannot be. So it is not measurable. It, so it, it's, no, it's not real in itself. See, the word manifestation... The inheritance, the inherent quality of the pot is its manifestation of clay. You cannot remove the pot from the clay. You cannot. But you can remove the clay from the pot. Destroy the pot, clay remains. Yeah. Consciousness remains. Right. We are not saying anything different. What are you saying? See, you are using the same language as God. See, I know that something rankles in the mind. That's the, our tendency, our in, inherent tendency to let go of the reality of the world. We are fighting to the last inch to somehow claim some reality for the world. Gaurapada says, I'll give you 100% reality of the world, but the 100% reality of the world belongs to consciousness. You are saying, is the dream a manif an illusion in the dreamer's mind or is it a manifestation of the dreamer's mind? Which is it? The dream is an illusion. Dream is an illusion of the dreamer's mind. In the same way, consciousness is an illusion in, uh, in consciousness. Uh, universe is an illusion in consciousness. It, it takes some shift. Of, it's, it's a huge paradigm shift mm -hmm. to look at it that way. Yes. And it, it has to be. One has to confront it because after all this is Mandukya. It is, uh, it is uh, the non-dual truth in its most concentrated form. And more than this, if you want, you have to go to Ashtavakra. There, of course, you will not be given any reasons. You will only be told this again and again and again. This is the last one which tries to reason with us. So, yes, whether you call it a manifestation. But what, what I'm saying is, can you claim that... It's a real reality, a second reality apart from the um, clay. You were saying clearly not. That's what Gaudapada is saying. The universe is not a new thing produced, a new thing. thing. It's not a countable thing. See, if you see the, um, uh, in fact, if you see the, um, the language of the Mandukya itself, it becomes clear what Gaudapada is trying to say. Gaurapada is saying the first three, waker and waker's universe, dreamer and dreamer's universe, deep sleeper and the deep sleep causal universe, are these countably different from the Turiya? Are they really three? No. no. They are all appearances and disappearances in Turiya. They, you cannot count them separately from Turiya. I'm asking... Is the golden bangle, necklace and ring, are they three ornaments? You say, yes. Compare it to gold. Are they three ornaments now? No. no. I'm saying 10,000 waves in the Atlantic Ocean. 10,000. How many are there? 10,000. Not one, not non-dual. There are 10,000. Now compare it to water. How many are there? One. one. I would rather say not two. Not two. Look at the beauty of the word term not to. If you say one, it's water, but clearly, then you say, but the waves are something, right? Would you be satisfied if I said all those 10,000 waves are not two with respect to water? Correct. This is Advaitam. This is non-duality. What is, what is meant by the falsity of the universe? Let me give you one more example. This, this one, uh, the clay and pot is the second thing, you know, that... Uh, uh, it is borrowed existence. The pot borrows its existence from the clay. Let me give you an example for the first one. The seeing, drishyatva, the, the objective object to consciousness. It's a beautiful example. 
I came across it in the writing of one, uh, his name is Singer, Michael Singer. He was, he was a billionaire and uh, uh, he was the head of this WebMD. Uh -huh, yeah. Yeah. Then he had this enlightenment experience and he resigned from it, gave it all up. Also was investigated by SEC, I think. <laughs> so, whatever. <laughs> no, but, it, uh, I, but I think ultimately the conclusion was he had no fault. It is not his fault. Anyhow, he gave it all up and he had, had a, a kind of uh, enlightenment experience. He gave this example, which I liked so much. The example he says is, sit in, you're, suppose you're sitting in a movie hall and watching a movie. Movie is sights and sounds and you are engaged in it. You are engaged in it. You are really experiencing. But also, you are aware of your own existence apart from the movie. Why? Because you can feel your body and um, other sensations are there quite apart from the movie. You feel your own existence apart from the movie. But sight and sound are powerfully presented in the movie. And once in a while you tend to forget your own existence. If it's a good movie, you tend to get absorbed in it. Now suppose, he says, one more thing is added. Um, say, smell is added. Say, sensation of movement is added. The, the chair moves and you get a spurt of, you know, like you go to a flower and it becomes a 3D thing which floats out of the screen towards you. you. When you lean forward to it, the chair sort of tilts so you feel you're leaning forward to it. And you sniff it, there'll be a squirt of, of a, a scent from the chair. Actually, something like that, a theater has been made. So this is still possible. Go a little further, which has not been made. Suppose all your sen physical sensations, all five senses are now part of the movie. Some kind of very advanced VR, suppose. It will become so living for you. It's a movie not only with sight, with smell, with taste, with sound, with touch. Okay? This is the movie. Here. It will be exactly like this. Now he says, go one more step. You have to follow this mentally. Go, it's a beautiful, startling example. He says, go one more step forward. Or deeper insight, inward. Imagine, in the movie, the thoughts and feelings of the, of the character. Pick one character, the hero. His or her thoughts and feelings are now your thoughts and feelings. You have no other thoughts and feelings. The feelings are like, you are exactly feeling what that person is feeling, the actor is feeling. You are thinking what the actor is thinking. You have no more thought of yourself, no more feeling of yourself. Sensory inputs are long gone. What will it be like? Like now. Like now. You are the consciousness lighting it all up. All that you are left with, you are the consciousness. The entire thing is a movie. Shining in the light of your consciousness. This is what he experienced. I was when I read this, I was reminded. I have told you a number of times of the story of the sadhu in Gangotri, where uh, uh, he had not seen TV, and the TV crew had come, and they were taking pictures of the river Ganga, and they put up a TV uh, in front of the Swami to show him. This, the sadhu's name was. Um, 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 wait, Laksh Lakshman Das. So they put up a TV in front of the sadhu and cranked up a generator and pointed the camera at the river. And the sadhu said to us, Swamis, I could see everything, the Ganga river. 
I could even hear the gurgling sound of the water. I could hear the sound of the water, gurgling water. I could see the river. Then I said to the TV producer, I said, Sir, can you give me a glass of water from the river? In the, from, the, from your magic box, from the glass of Ganga water. Babu, uh, say gilas Ganga pani And the producer laughed and said, Oh Swami, it's not there. It just looks like that. He said in Hindi, It's not there, it looks like that. And then the Swami turned to all of us who were sitting there, a group of monks, and he said, all of this, and there you just have to imagine the magnificent vista, those towering mountains all around. It's just, you're like in, in the, uh, the Gangotri is a valley, but it's a valley 10,000 feet high. The valley itself is 10,000 feet high, and the mountains surrounding it, they soar up to 15, 20, the real giants. Um, so, and they are covered with snow at that time, um, but the valley is free of snow. And there are these Devadar forests and the river, it's fast and narrow and roaring at, at our, near, near our foot. And he says, all of this, he says, Mahatma Ji, ye sab ye dikhti hai, hai nahi. All of it appears to you. It has no existence. It has no reality, he said. But it appears to you how? Like this, what, what Michael Singer has said, like this movie, multi-sensory movie. You have no other senses except the five senses presented to you by a movie. No other thoughts except the thoughts presented to you by, by this extraordinary movie and feelings. How, what will it be like? Exactly like this. Five More than five dimensions. Five senses, five dimensions. Plus feelings and thoughts and ideas and memories. All of that supplied to you. You are the awareness shining on all of that. And now... Having gone, this is step one. This is not even Advaita. This is Sankhya. Separation between self and not self. Next, Advaita will ask, So it all appears to you, the consciousness. This movie. Five dimension plus some more. I think nine dimensions or something like that. There's 90 movies appearing before you. What is the relationship of all of this to you? What is the relationship? What are they to you? Are they something separate and you are something separate and you are watching it? Or are they in some sense related to you? They depend on you. Yes. Well, how will you argue that? Because there is no proof of their existence apart from you. Yeah. Where is the proof of the existence of any of this apart from you? None of them can be revealed without you shining on it. They come and go. They shine. See, both uh, reasons apply here. Their existence is dependent on you, the light of the, your consciousness. They are drishya, they are objects. And they also come and go. They are temporal, they are temporary. Both things apply to that extraordinary movie, which is nothing other than a vivid description of your life now. I like that so much, that uh, example he has given. Very powerful. Yes, you should just take the example of a movie and you add, keep on adding one by one, one by one, one more, more and more and more, and you will see this is what you get. Just piggybacking on his question, and with the motivation being to get closer to what Sri Ramakrishna might have exactly said, I am referring to what Ayan Maharaj mentioned. So I'll present two scenarios. We start with clay in two plates. 
and in one plate I go ahead and make a pot huh. and destroy it back to the clay. Huh. In the other plate, the clay remains as is. Huh. It was never made into a pot. Huh. Now the not two, huh. I understand very clearly. Huh. I mean, both are not two. Huh. But which is the thing that Sri Ramakrishna is talking? Is he talking about the, the plate, you know, in which the clay was made into a pot, then reduced back into its essence? Or the other plate where neither never made into a pot? Neither, neither. What Sri Ramakrishna is talking about, we will keep it aside for the time being. It's an extension based on what Gaurapada is saying. First, let's grasp what Gaurapada is saying. You know what Gaurapada would say to these examples. The clay made into a pot and the clay not made into a pot. The difference between them, the clay not made into a pot is like Sushupti, deep sleep. The clay made into a pot is like dream and uh, waking. Yeah. In both cases, it is the one clay. Yeah. Unmanifest and manifest. Unmanifest is called causal, karana. Manifest is called sukshma sthula, subtle and gross. Yeah. What? And we can all continuously experience it within ourselves. What is gross or what is physical? This. What do you mean by subtle manifestation? Look inside. Thoughts, feelings, ideas, emotions, desires. This is subtle, this is gross. Beyond that, if you try to switch all of it up, which you do every night in deep sleep, that is, subtle, that is causal. All three are appearing and disappearing in something beyond the causal also. Often the non-dual reality is mistaken to be the causal. Because you think the non-dual reality must be something like a blankness or a darkness or a featureless light. No, no, no. It's none of them. Darkness, blankness, featureless light, they are all objects. Okay, so in the movie example, if everything in the movie is an appearance of the movie watcher consciousness, that is non-duality. That is non-duality. That is what Gaudapada is trying to say. Okay, I will say one thing You consider for your consideration. The more you think about this, the more you think about this, you will come to this understanding this is a very, at the least, this is a very viable way of looking at our present experience right now. Not one thing in our experience has to be denied to accept this. Everything in our present experience is fully explained by this. And if you accept it, it is liberating. It is liberating. Rather, will come to it in any other other paradigm if you look at it materialistic paradigm religious paradigm there'll be something left out unexplained modern science science comes to a grinding halt at the hard problem of consciousness not out there in the universe not down in the tiniest things in the universe not in the macrocosm not in the microcosm rather in the subject modern science comes to a grinding halt no idea of how to explain it Religion comes to a grinding halt when trying to explain the universe. Every claim that religion has tried to make is now being falsified by um, science. So the, so the hard problem is irrelevant in the, in the context of Advaita. Irrelevant means it is explained. Hard problem is how can we have first person experiences? The answer is this Turiya, this pure consciousness, its very nature is first person experience. There is a philosopher looking him up, Galen Strawson, very interesting philosopher. He is in UT, Texas. 
he has uh, said that it is hard, there is no hard problem of consciousness. Why? Not in the materialist sense. The materialists also say no hard problem of consciousness. Even recently Peter Caruthers or somebody has written that there is no um, problem of consciousness. They are saying it's brain only. But Galen Strawson says just the opposite. Consciousness is continuously and directly experienced by all of us all the time. What problem is there? He says there is a hard problem of matter. Which is exactly what Gaudapada is saying in this second chapter. You look, at, look him up, Galen Strawson, Hard Problem of Matter, beautifully has put this. The thing is, modern science is trying to reduce consciousness to matter, desperately. If you see the hard problem... Matter doesn't exist. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, the modern science is desperately trying to reduce consciousness to matter. Because the paradigm of modern science is time, space, matter, energy is the reality. If there is anything called consciousness, somehow it must have originated out of matter. Desperately trying to. Galen Strawson has another essay. The silliest claim ever. He says the silliest claim ever. If, if you Google it, you'll find fantastic uh, essay. It was published in, I think, New York Times or somewhere. Um, somewhere. The silliest claim ever. He says, it is this claim of modern scientists that consciousness does not exist. He says... Worse than the worst superstitions, stupider than the most gross claims of ancient religions, is this, this silly claim that consciousness does not exist. That which is the very fundamental thing about our experience, first consciousness than anything else in the universe, that does not exist. So this is, this, he calls it the silliest claim ever. And then he says, hard problem of matter. He says, the more we investigate matter, the more physics advances at its most cutting edge, matter is disappearing before our eyes. What is the nature of matter? The latest discoveries, I don't understand it. It's very sophisticated, very deep. But I know from people, at least two or three people who are highly qualified in this field. Two or three who have told me and one or two have seen on, on the screen. This is quantum mechanics. Multiple interpretations are there. The mathematics is the same. The results are the same. Interpretations are many. The mathematics is clear. What it means, nobody knows. They give multiple contradictory interpretations of the, of the mathematics. What is the nature of, of matter, energy, time, space? What is the reality of it? We don't know. Then what is physics doing? It is showing how it behaves. It, it, is, um, it has given us precise mathematical tools to deal with this reality. But what is it in reality? Are they like billiard ball like particles? There is a schoolboy idea long since, since discarded. So he says hard problem of matter. Google it, you'll see. Wonderful essay. Uh, hard problem of matter. What is matter? Another place I read um, is... Um, the um, Jim Holt, why does the world exist? At the end of the book, he says, Aristotle defined reality as stuff and form, substance and, and form, hylomorph, he called it. Um, substance, so, this, so for example, pot, our classic example. There's a difference between Advaita and uh, uh, Aristotle, uh, or Western philosophy. Uh, Aristotle says reality is the substance itself, clay, Plus the name and form which is pot. These two. This is reality. Advaita strikes right there. 
and says, really, name and form is an independent component of reality? It is not. It is entirely nothing other than the substance itself. Because without the substance, you cannot talk of name and form. And the, and the substance is independent of name and form. You can give multiple names and forms to the same substance. Same gold can be so many ornaments. Same clay can be so many kinds of pots and jars. So substance is reality, literally, according to Advaita. And according to uh, Aristotle, so anyway, what the point Jim Holt makes is, hylomorph, name and form, this is reality. And now he says, as science has advanced, as we go deeper and deeper and we understand the nature of our physical universe, we get more and more of form and substance is disappearing before our eyes. The, the materialistic universe, where materialistic universe, the very word materialistic, where is the matter in the materialistic? It's disappearing into form and Vedanta would say, yes, if you seriously investigate the universe, you will end up with name and form. Why is the matter disappearing before your eyes? Because Vedanta will say very clear, the matter is not out there. The matter is you the observer. The substance is you the observer. You are the reality. The movie which is playing out there, the reality of the movie is not there. The reality of the movie is you. This is the claim of Advaita Vedanta. If you investigate the dream, the dream example, if you investigate the dream, you will never find any reality in it. You will end up with multiple contradictions. Name and form of the dream will be there. But the reality of the dream is not in the dream. It's the dreaming mind. Which is not a part of the dream. It is appearing as the dream itself. Okay. Now, um, let me go on. Quickly. What happened after this? Very quickly. Um, objections came up. Strong objection says, Gaurapada says, you are reducing waking and dreaming to the same level. Strong objections against this. If you remember, there were uh, four main objections. One was on the ground of utility. Hold on to the dream example. You can give the answers to, answers to all the objections yourself. The ground of utility. A false thing does not function, does not fulfill its purpose. That which is real fulfills its purpose. Example. Real water will quench my thirst, but the water in a mirage does not quench my thirst. Therefore, water in a mirage is false. Real wa uh, water in a glass, which I have in front of me, is real. And therefore, there is a difference between um, the uh, erroneous water in a mirage and what I see in my waking state. Similarly, dream and waking are not the same. Objection. This is not Advaita. This is not Gaudapada. This is objection. What is seen in the dream is an error. Waking world is real. What is Gaudapada's answer? Same thing can, is, is true of the dream also. Note that water, you are thirsty in a dream, water by your bedside will not quench your thirst. Only water you find in the dream will quench your thirst in the dream. <laughs> Absolutely. Utility is on that particular plane of awareness. The same thing can be claimed in the dream itself. Okay. The next um, doubt which was raised was that um, 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 continuity. Waking world, we keep coming back to this waking world. But dream world, it comes and goes. Every dream is different. So continuity is a sign of reality and that discontinuity you see in the dream. That's why dream is dream, waking is waking, waking is real, dream is false. Answer, 
This you are saying when coming back to the waking world and comparing the dream with the waking world. In the dream, no such discontinuity is seen. Every dream seems perfectly, otherwise the dream you would say, oh, it's discontinuous, it must be a dream. No. In the dream, the entire waking world is forgotten completely. There's no question of a continuous waking world in the dream. So, seen from its own perspective, each state is consistent within itself, is continuous within itself. The third objection was uh, externality. It's the, like, uh, for example, that which is external and public. Right now, here is an eraser. Now I say there are two erasers, one in my hand and one in my mind, there are two. You will say, no, 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 there are not two, there's only one, the one which you are holding there, which we all can see, the other one in your mind is not real, it's imagined. So there's clearly a difference between an external object and one which is only in your mind. Similarly, dreams are in your mind, but the world, external things are in, in reality, waking world is real, dreams are just dreams false. Godapada is wrong. Answer? The same thing you can do in a dream. In a dream, you can hold out a, an eraser and say, there, is, uh, there are two erasers. One is here in my hand, one I'm imagining in my mind. And the people in the class in the dream would say, no, 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 there's only one which is in, the mind, in, a, in your hand and the one in your mind is false. When I wake up, both would be false. Right? That is the externality argument. Third argument is um, clarity and vagueness. It's a subtle argument, but very interesting. It attacks the very concept of a dream. It says, see, dreams are, you are saying it's real, but dreams are vague. Look at this world right now and recall the memory of a dream. See the difference between the two. This is what you might call industrial grade reality. <laughs> that is a vague thing. Swachata, spashtata, this is clarity. Every sense organ attests to the reality of this thing. And that's such a vague thing. So this is the proof that this is real and that is false. What do you answer to that? First of all, yeah, exactly. But first of all, note one thing here. It is unfair to compare memory of a dream to your current experience of waking. You just said, bring up the memory of a dream and current experience of waking. No, 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 no. If you, want, if you want to compare, compare the memory of, of a, say, of a bun or, or, or a, a piece of toast you had eaten in your dream and the memory of the piece of toast you had for breakfast in the morning today. Compare those two memories, how do they feel like? Both feel equally vague. Don't you see? It's remarkable. Compare memories of your waking and memories of your dreams. See how remarkably same they are. Same means phenomenologically, they feel the same. Neither feels more real than the other. Both feel vague. The only thing that feels dramatically real is the present. Do you know why? Not because these objects are real. You are in the present. Wherever you are, that is real. Those things are not real in themselves. They borrow reality from you. In fact, Advaita would go for, further and say there is only one time which is the present. Because all that you experience is the present. The past is a memory, the future is an expectation and both the memory and the expectation are here in the present now. And for you, this, it's always present. From the consciousness point of view, it's always the present. What other time is there in consciousness? It's only memory that generates 
past and uh, our ability to project into the future that generates a possible future. But when that was experienced, it was the present. And when that thing in the future will be experienced, it will still be the present. Okay. I know one monk who experienced time and space as an eternal now and here. <coughs> For a brief period of time, it suddenly felt to him that he is absolutely still and present. And time has floated past him. And he's floating past him, like a movie. He is not traveling through time, from past to present to future. No, time is traveling in front of him. He is not traveling in space. He was sitting in a rickshaw at that time. Rather, space is floating past him. That's, an, that's the consciousness point of view. It's only because we are in a body that we seem to be moving through space. That when we identified with the body. When you are identified with the mind, you seem to be moving through time. When you identified with consciousness as it is, time and space seem to be in you. That beautiful example I had given, when he said, consciousness is all pervading, a teacher said in Haridwar. Then the monk protested, Sarvavyapi, all pervading. The monk protested, how can I be all pervading? I am here, not even there. How can I be all pervading? Of course, he's speaking from the point of view of the body, but still, see the direct answer given by the teacher. The unskilled teacher would say, oh, you are identified with the body because of your location in the body. That's why you think you are there and not here. Okay, mediocre answer. Real answer the teacher gave. What was the answer? He said, ah, he said, I am here and not there. How can I be all pervading? In this little room also, I am only here and not there. And the answer was, ah, but here and there, are they not both in you? In you, the consciousness. Yaha or waha. Dono to aap mein In where is this here and there? It could have been perceived in a dream also. When you wake up in a dream, you would have said, both here and there are easily within me. And clearly it is being perceived in consciousness. From a consciousness perspective, you transcend time and space. Transcending time and space is not like space capsule going out of somewhere. No. You see that they are all in you. They are appearances in you. They are not a real medium through which you are traveling like a physical body through space or a temporal mind through time. Okay. Uh, what else? So these are the four objections and four are dismissed. What are the four objections? One is um, waking things have utility, dream things do not have utility, but no. Uh, second one was waking world is continuous, dream world is discontinuous, again dismissed. One third one was waking world is clear, objects in the waking world are clear, dream world are like things in the mind, again dismissed. And the fourth clear means um, external, external and um, public, but that's also easily dismissed. And the fourth one was clarity. Dream memory and waking present, you should not compare. Compare a waking memory and a dream memory, you will see both are equally vague. Now, after this, what happened in the chapter? Then came, so this is Gaudapada's worldview. Then came, Gaudapada says, what are the rival worldviews? 35 theories will be taken up and dismissed quickly. You remember, some of them are obscure, now no longer we discuss them. But anyway, the common thing about all those theories is, some object or the other is taken as the ultimate reality. Body is taken as the ultimate reality. Matter is taken as the ultimate reality. An external God is taken as an ultimate reality. Time is taken as an ultimate reality. Prana or life is taken as... They are all objects. They are all objects. 
one biologist here in CUNY, he was saying that no consciousness will be explained because you see at one time life was mysterious. Nowadays we have a very thorough down to the molecular level understanding of what is happening in life. So one day we will explain consciousness. I did not uh, say anything there because it would take a little bit of explanation to say what I am saying because this perspective is not very clear for them. You see immediately from a Vedantic perspective what's wrong with that answer? Prana, life, is it an object or not? It's an object. You have now got a deep understanding of prana. Means, means what? You can explain prana in time or life in terms of other objects. Organic compounds and all of that you can explain. You can explain a complex objective phenomenon in, in terms of simpler other objective phenomena. That in principle does not extend to the subject. You are saying that one day I will be able to explain the subject in terms of the object. No. No, no, no. The movie cannot explain you. You can explain the movie. Okay. 35. I am not talking about them. 35. I counted. 35 theories. One after another quickly. Gaudapada dismissed. Then he summarizes the whole teaching. I think 32nd verse. There are two important, really, uh, verses which are very important in this chapter. And my favorites too. Uh, the 32nd verse. Yes. Thirty-second verse is, I gave a full talk on that. It's called the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth. I gave four talks on the Mandukya Karika. So the second talk was called the ultimate truth. That's only on one verse of this chapter. The, maybe the most stunning verse of this chapter. Thirty-second verse was, it's basically a summary. What follows from all of this discussion? Now the discussion is over. He's summarizing the conclusion. And he summarizes in a dramatic, like a hammer blow. Na nirodho na chotpattir, na baddho na cha sadhaka, na mumukshur na vai mukta, ittesha paramarthata. This universe, pot, let's take the pot. The universe or the pot has no origination, no cessation. So what do you mean? Pot was created and destroyed. Again, remember, from the point of view of reality, no second thing was ever created. Second thing means second reality, second entity. Apart from the clay, apart from Turiya. There is no waker apart from you, the consciousness. There is no dreamer apart from you, the consciousness. There is no deep sleeper apart from you, the consciousness. In association with the causal body, you, the consciousness, are called deep sleeper. In association with the subtle body, you, the consciousness, are called dreamer. In association with the causal, subtle and gross bodies, you, the consciousness, are called waker. Vishvataija Sapragya. What about these gross, subtle and causal bodies? They are nothing apart from consciousness itself. Just like the pot is nothing apart from the clay, though it seems to be apart. It behaves differently. It has a different name, a different uh, use. So, no cessation, no origination. Nobody who is in bondage. Is the clay bound to a pot? No. Is the gold bound to an ornament? No. Ornament is bound to gold? Yes. yes. Entirely dependent upon the gold. Is the water bound to a wave? If it was, then it would always be a wave. No. No, but though nobody, consciousness is never in bondage. 
na sadaka na mumukshu since you are not in bondage there is really nobody who is seeking liberation what about spiritual all of us we are coming to class meditating worshiping so many things we are doing so many religions na sadaka nobody is doing any any spiritual practice what about the enlightened buddha shankara ramakrishna na mukta nobody is enlightened what are you saying ittesha paramarthata this is i'm telling you the highest truth <laughs> the highest truth is consciousness itself everything else you say then what is it because we are experiencing it he does not deny that you experience bond universe origination of the universe existence of the universe cessation of the universe he does not deny you experience it he does not deny that you transact in it he does not deny you find it useful he does not deny that you feel you are in bondage he does not deny that many are struggling for liberation that many are performing spiritual practices you experience all this nobody he does not deny but he says in all of that the reality is only one turiya which you are see if you realize what he is saying here it's done intellectually if you realize it a great peace depends uh, descends upon you if you vividly realize it you are enlightened right now i was reading in in ashtavakra a fantastic verse which said in 18th chapter ashtavakra says ashtavakra is very concentrated if there's anything more than this that's ashtavakra does he says the unenlightened by tremendous practice or by no practice in no way is does that person find any peace and the enlightened just by this knowledge the person is at peace eternally the the unenlightened if you translate it it's like something the unenlightened <coughs> muraha unenlightened neither by activity nor by withdrawing from activity does that person find peace this person <coughs> just by this knowledge this this knowledge itself immediately is forever at peace does not matter if he is externally active or not active Yes. What does forever at peace mean? Because there's no time. There's no time. We have to use the language of um, Vidyaranya says we have to use the language of duality to express any of this. Hmm. All right. Um, then so this is the sum- summary. Then follows the last section of the chapter, where he says from verse number thirty-four. Um, no, thirty. Five to thirty-eight. Last portion, a very beautiful portion of this chapter, where he says, "Now, so what? What do I do now?" Okay, you have taught us all this. Remember what we have gone through so far. The dream in itself, he first he proves that dreams are false. Then he uses that example to show the waking world is as false from the perspective of consciousness. Then he goes on to deal with certain objections. Uh, like utility clarity externality continuity then he goes on to mention a list of 35 other theories uh, each of which takes some object and makes it the reality dismisses all of that and then he con- he summarizes it all by saying neither origination nor cessation nobody uh, in bondage nobody trying to get freedom nobody practicing spiritual disciplines nobody who is free or enlightened this is the final truth he has concluded and now he says what do you do right now what are we supposed to do after having studied this so in um, four verses uh, he gives the conclusion 
the practice and the result. What is the practice? 35th verse he says, Shravana manana nididhyasana. Listen carefully, study it carefully, think it through. Every objection must be answered and to your satisfaction. Not to your satisfaction, repeat. Still not happening. One Swami says very nicely, better luck next life. <laughs> now repeat. And that's why Vedanta has so many texts and so many approaches. Something might click, who knows? Yes. Question about next life. So we're sitting here all studying. Maybe some of us will become enlightened in this life, some next, most of us not. So then next life comes. Whatever we acquire now, we will take with us the next time. So we don't have to... So we will start where we left off. Yes. Sri Krishna says that, but that has also to be interpreted. Next life, you can't turn up and say that I attended up to second chapter last time. I'm going to start with the third chapter now. No, what is inherited are tendencies, samskaras. So, but that is the really important thing, N not memory. If you memorize the Gita, uh, or I've got the Bible by heart, next life, you'd have to do it all over again. But you might think that's a loss, not really. What really powers us in our spiritual life here in this life is our samskaras, our inherent tendencies. What brought you here, what made you and me and all of us spiritual seekers is not really what we have read and all that. It's because our tendencies have plugged into those things. That's why we like reading this. That's why we like pursuing that. There are so many people in this world. Same books are available to everybody. Same teachers are available. They're not interested. It's a knowledge itself does not make so much difference. It's a samskara. Uh, the, the inherent tendencies. So when you come back in next life, they, if, if, uh, if we do not, let's get in, uh, enlightenment in this life itself. But if we do, do not, next life we, we have the whole set of tendencies which make spiritual life wherever we are, which civilization we are in, whatever happens, we don't know. But spiritual life will become much more, you'll say, oh, this person, she's a born saint. <laughs> Uh, so, that happens. We come with, with the proper samskaras. The samskaras are important, not actually what we read or how many books we have read and all that. Yes. Wait, let me finish this. Hold on to your questions. Having done all of this, Shravana Manana, then 36th verse says, importance of Niridhyasana. Advaite Yojayet Smritim. Keep centering yourself. Keep centering yourself. That Michael Singer, he said, that extending the movie example. Now that you know the whole thing is a movie, the tendency is to get lost in the person. Who is the person? Consciousness plus a part of the movie. On set of thoughts, feelings, emotions and one body. And I get identified with the character in the movie. If you continuously keep centered in yourself as consciousness and keep on acting and doing things in the movie, movie will go on. Let it go on then that is Niridhyasana. He didn't say it's Niridhyasana. He said you should do that. He said that's the best, that's the highest practice. He also had a very nice line. He says consciousness is the highest name that you can call yourself. Um, so Niridhyasana, Advaita Yoja Smriti means, it's also a practice. This is before enlightenment. Once you understood this, keep trying to be centered in it. Keep trying to be centered. You will see it's beautiful. In one sense, once you get the hang of it, like riding a bicycle or something, you will see everything in the universe is helping you to get centered. 
everything, every sound reminds me it is an arising in me the awareness. Everything that I see, everything that is pleasurable, everything that is annoying, everything that is painful, everything that is pleasure, uh, everything that is uh, joyful, all depend on me, the blazing light of awareness. Mind is alert, mind is tired, sleepy, all possible because of awareness. He gives a nice practice. Uh, I mean, the, what he, Godapada says here that Michael Singer, he said, uh, modern form of Nididhyasana. He says, anytime, just start this little practice. Uh, people today don't like mantras and all that. So he just said, use hello as a mantra. Okay, so mentally, internally say to yourself, hello, hello, hello. Notice, what is noticing this hello? And you are back. You are back because he has understood what, what it means. If you have not really understood, it's not so easy to be back. But we get a sense. Do we not get a sense what we are talking about? <laughs> By this time, we'll get a sense. If not, remember the process. Repeat. <laughs> Repeat. Then after Nididhyasana, what will happen? Then you become enlightened. Um, for the enlightened person, one more powerful practice is recommended in the 37th verse. You remember? Becoming a monk. Actually becoming a monk. If you actually do not become a monk externally, the real thing is to become monk-like internally in your mind. That is, that is a very powerful practice or very powerful environment for practice. Then the last one, I'll chant this and end. This is the second verse which I find very important in this chapter. First verse, na nirodho na chutpatti, that 32nd verse which I really like in this chapter. It's a high point. And the second one which I like in this chapter is this last verse. Tattvam adhyatmikam drishtva Tattvam drishtva tu bahyata Tattvi bhuta stadaramaha Tattva dapracyuto bhavet I gave a whole, whole class on this I think last time. So I am not going to discuss it. See the truth within. I am the pure consciousness. See the truth in the universe outside. This is nothing other than pure consciousness. I the pure consciousness. Be that pure consciousness. Be that means you recognize I am that pure consciousness. Enlightenment is nothing but removing the wrong notion that I am not Brahman. Removing that itself is enlightenment. Then Tadarama. All your needs are fulfilled in that one awareness. That one has no demands, nothing required. Nothing can add to it, nothing can take away from it. You are that forever, again forever. So, Tadarama, it, it is Arama literally, that is the place of rest. And Tattvad Aprachyato Bhavet, never slip away from, never slip away from that, that principle. Never slip away from that principle. If you take it as a practice, not yet enlightened. If you realize you can never, you can never slip away from it. Nobody has ever slipped away from it. Neither can you. It's impossible. How can the clay, how can the pot slip away from the clay? Cannot. How can the wave escape the water? Cannot. Whatever it is, it may have the wrong notion that I am a wave. See, there are different levels to this um, mistake. I am a wave. Water? Oh, what is water? I don't know. I am a wave. Or once it has understood the water, what is water? It may have that notion. Yes, I understand the water. But right now I am a wave. I was water. 
but I am a wave now and with plenty of spiritual practice and lots of Vedanta classes, I will become water again. <laughs> so, when you get the clarity that you can never slip away from um, your real nature, you cannot slip away from that. You are that. It's perfectly alright. In the deepest sense, it is alright. Um, one Swami put it so beautifully. You're all trying to have samadhi, you know, the yogis there. I've met people trying so hard. So in that context, the statement is said. He said, you have to realize, Atma to nitya samadhi mein hai. The Atma is in eternal samadhi. As um, Samadhi means pure consciousness. Samadhi means the highest spiritual state. But the Atma is always that. What else is it? At all times. So this is chapter 2. The other side of the coin is non-duality. Falsity of the universe, plurality, is false. This is one side of the coin. The obverse of that is non-duality. That's what he will take up. Enough of discussion of falsity. Now let's go on to the truth, which is non-dual Brahman, reality. That will be chapter 3, Advaita Prakarana. That will start next time. You had, do you remember the questions? I'll come to you, yes. Yes. Gaudapada would say, don't bother, you are that. Samskaras don't have anything to do with samskara. It is part of the, of, the, of the movie. I have these samskaras, now I must change these and, and add good ones. Don't touch it with a barge pole. That's Gaudapada's thing. Ashtavakra goes even further. The things he says is almost scandalous. He says, you are trying to attain samadhi. This is your only bondage, you fool. Whom is he saying? The highest sadhaka. We are not trying, we are not trying anyway, so no, 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 no So that is Gaudapada's point of view. But now, coming down to more practical, the level of the sadhaka. Yes, um, definitely there is some carryover from past life, otherwise interest won't come. I have seen, you know what happens? Um, if there is no samskara, at some time in life, due to different blows and suffering, a question may arise and what person might get interested and they might get involved in some spiritual practice and they would again, I've seen it happen again and again, they drift away again, caught back in the world, turn up again 25 years ago. Swami, I used to come here and uh, your predecessor was there, I met him. I've come after 25 years and my answer is, I don't say it, but my internal answer is why? <laughs> why after 25 years? But it can't be helped. It's the old story in Mundaka Upanishad, this Mandukya. In the Mundaka Upanishad, the beautiful thing about the tree of samsara. Actually, it's the tree of the body. And there is the two birds. The lower bird, it hops from branch to branch and pecks at fruit and eats fruit. When it gets a particularly bitter fruit, gets a shock, stops hopping around, looks up and sees the, the highest branch, the top of the tree, there is a shining bird, bird with shining plumage. It neither eats nor hops about, it just watches. And this bird is entranced by the peace and serenity and the radiance of that higher bird. And the lower bird is attracted to that higher bird and it hops towards that. 
But on the way, it sees a particularly shy, nice fruit. So it's just a minute. It goes and pecks it. And it's a nice fruit. Forgets all the, about the higher birth. And then goes here and there. And then finally gets another terrible shock. Then it remembers. And in this way, finally it makes the final dash towards that higher bird. And as it comes to the higher bird, something strange happens. It is itself transfigured and as it reaches the higher bird, it disappears. It never was. The higher bird only was all throughout. Who is that higher bird? The real you. Who is the lower bird? The person you. The higher bird is nothing apart from you. You are that higher bird right now. Why Gaurapada seems so shocking? He just says, you are that higher bird, stay there. What about the lower bird? Um, how to make it stop hopping around? How to make it uh, make, um, um, stop pecking this and that? Gaurapada says, let go. Don't concern yourself. The moment you touch that lower bird, you're trapped in the, in the tree, samsara, tree samsara. So we say it's too difficult. All right, the scenic route for you then. <laughs> Teach the lower bird, don't peck at poisonous fruit. Peck only at the healthy fruit. That is morality and immorality. First, this is called Lakshman Rekha. The, the circle uh, of the line of ethics and morality which is drawn around. It's a limitation. We have a complete freedom to do this and that. We have, right now. I can do all sorts of immoral things. But first of all, civilization, the police, the law puts a line around me. Then my own sense of decency and morality puts a line around me. Society uh, teaches me. The civilization itself teaches me. That's the first training of the lower bird. Then higher, that spiritual practice is possible. That higher bird is a reality. That is a goal to be achieved. How to we achieve it? You must become unselfish. You must cultivate uh, truth, non-violence. You must cultivate discipline. Then that higher bird, who is that? That's God. Believe in God. Worship God. Love God. And the first issue, you are not told you are that. God. Devotional practices. Meditation. Forget the fruit. Concentrate on the higher bird. Don't think about the fruit. Don't open your eyes. Don't hop around. Yama, niyama, asana, prana, pratyahara. And continuously keep on attending the Upanishad classes. You kept being told about the nature of the higher bird. You are that. You are that. Slowly you begin to realize, what am I? And you realize that lower bird begins to melt away. Then it was only the higher bird who was watching this movie. Yes. Samskaras are transferred. And you want, as I said, if it was not there, you would drift away. It takes years. If you're consistently following sadhana, you are not a sadhaka for one life. You've got it from earlier lives. There's no, senior monks have told me. The people who are consistently, especially Advaita Vedanta, I regard as my personal view. Advaita Vedanta I regard as a kind of finishing school for spirituality. Everything else, this I, I should not say, but everything else, rituals and you know all sorts of tantra and chakras and kundalini and all sorts of things are there. Devotional practices, all very nice and useful. But this knowledge, I am that, is the final end of all of that. Of all religion, all ritual, all civilization, science, art, everything culminates in this. 
I'm not alone in this. In Kashmiri Shaivism, I was reading, I think it was Abhinava Gupta or somebody who says, before starting a whole text on Kashmiri Shaivism, all sorts of teachings, he says, for the one who realizes, I am that consciousness called Shiva, the rest of what follows is not necessary. You had a question? Yes. Yes, yes. So I get the impression what he's saying is just be. Yes. And then in the last four ver uh, verses, he is telling you what to do. Yes. So I see that not really as a contradiction, but could you explain that difference? Yes, as a practical aid. If I tell you just be Turiya, I said, yes, I can do it. I am that. What well, do what? Do nothing. <laughs> I am Turiya. That's it. If you can, very good. You don't have to go to the next verse anymore. Finished. You can return your book to the library. <laughs> but it's not easy at all. And then comes the teaching. What he has taught in the last four verses is what is called Jnana Yoga. Shravana, Manana, Nididhyasana is Jnana Yoga. Even that itself is the, <laughs> like the highest form of sadhana. That is supported by Bhakti Yoga, Karma Yoga, Raja Yoga, all of those things are there. No, it is for all of us, even for people who have not uh, attained the truth, because it's the teaching itself. 32nd verse is the summary of 2nd chapter. What do you get out of all of this? That's 32nd verse. That's the real state of affairs. Now you say that, yeah, I get it intellectually, but it's not real to me. Okay, then come to 34, 35, 36, 37, 38. Yeah. He says, okay, finished, nothing more. Thank you, Swami, I'm not coming back anymore. Done? That story I told you about, I'll end with that. On the Holy Mother's birthday, um, that young man who came, who uh, was little, like bloodshot eyes, he'd walked all the way from Vishnupur, 28 miles overnight, and he asks that story, uh, Satyendranath, is, uh, does the, where does the Divine Mother live? Take me to her. He said, I'm going there, come with me. What's your name? Where have you come from? Who's your family? I have no family, I have no name, I have not come from anywhere, nor am I going anywhere. I am a, he says, sacrifice to the Divine Mother. That's the language they use in Bengal there, bully. That means I'm, I'm, I'm going for being offered to the Divine Mother. So he thinks he's crazy or what? Anyway, he tells the Divine Mother that uh, she, um, he tells Masharada, this, is, this kind of person is there. She calls him upstairs. She initiates him. She feeds him. I think she made him sit next to her also. Uh, and she fed him, initiated him, fed him. Then he goes off into a deep slumber. At that time, the Holy Mother tells the Satyendranath, this is his last life. People, this kind of holy desperation is a sign of the last life. And that's what happened. He'd spend the rest of his life in service. And finally, in one of the relief activities where people were suffering, he was serving them, working day and night tirelessly. He contracted a terrible disease. And as he lay dying, the last description is, suddenly his eyes opened and he said, the mother has come, let us go. And he passed away. Now, this is kind of a devotional kind of approach. But anyway, the point is the same. All right. Yes. I have three questions. Three questions. Let's do the Shanti and then we will hear the questions. Okay. 
शांति 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 हरि ओम तत्सत श्रीरामकृष्णारूपणमस्तु Let's hear the questions. What is similarly linked to the, to the first ladies? And so I just asked the three because the first is a little bit irrelevant to Vedanta, but more to the spiritual, and then the other two more specific. So the first one is uh, karma, good karma, bad karma. Isn't there also? I got on the spiritual path, but I feel through trials. But I think there's a third. So you have the good karma, the bad karma. When you suffer, it's a result of bad karma but i think sometimes we also have trials which is not the result of bad karma it's just a way to push us to where we need to go if i wouldn't have been put through the suffering which i feel was a trial i wouldn't be sitting in this chair here today or wouldn't have started my journey four years ago so do we according to what you believe do you have trials independent from good and bad karma Or does it always feed into bad karma? And in oh. Jesus Christ, I don't think was nailed on the cross because of bad karma. <coughs> no, you're mixing up number of things. Jesus Christ is an avatar. Avatar doesn't have karma. So all the what the avatar does is called avatar leela, a divine play of of the avatar. So avatar is not born under the compulsion of karma like we are. Now, the answer to your question is that these two are not different actually. Trials and karma. he said trials push me towards spiritual life but according to vedanta karma the whole system of karma is designed to push us towards spiritual life why is there karma at all why is there causation why is there this universe at all why is this going on this game the whole game is for enlightenment as long as a person doesn't learn is pushed around by causality karma good karma happiness bad karma misery and it goes on and as a person evolves all the good and bad karma they all come together to push a person towards spiritual life so you don't have a, a third thing called just a trial just a trial by itself how would you explain it who who does that giving you a trial see the trial would be produced by the karma itself and it is it is for your spiritual evolution <clears throat> yeah they say that when a person becomes spiritually evolved um everything that happens pushes that person towards uh, towards religion and spirituality the reason why i'm asking because i'm also attending uh, classes in a spiritist center so they have it separate the trial is separate from good karma and from bad karma right so i said last time in my class i said i will ask my monk mm. <laughs> <laughs> he insists there is good karma bad karma and there's the trial mm. and, and see if you, if you ask godapada neither good karma nor bad karma nor the trial you you are the only only the consciousness okay. now Uh, the thing is my my advice would you to would be the what uh, what you said separate keep the two separate this one separate and the spirit is <laughs> separate if you if you mix them it will confuse you if you mix them it will confuse you it's only the trial that confuses me the rest not it's the issue of the trial okay so mm-hmm. i think i try to keep yeah, it yeah, separate yeah. i have two more okay quick 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 There are right answer answer to that question is yes. There are uh, examples of people who would want to come back. That's right. To help. To help. To, help. to, help. to, help. to uh, there there are 
In fact, Vivekananda, we believe, is one such, and so, so many others. The Buddhists have this whole idea of bodhisattva, of coming back again and again to work for the enlightenment of all sentient beings. Last. Okay, last. Uh, if you don't make it in this life, oh, okay, so you make it in this life, then you come back enlightened. How does it work? Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> <laughs>